one of the six goals that we have at Gamble Street Baptist Church is to embrace the globe or embrace the world with Christ. And I use the word globe because sometimes when we talk about embracing the world, that sends the wrong message. But you know what we're talking about. And some of you may remember the last time we dealt with this text, the last time we looked at this text as a church was on a Sunday morning and we were working through the book of Acts. Actually, yeah, we did. We did it on a Sunday morning. And I had about a dozen people stand in front of the congregation, and we read the first six verses of chapter 2 in our own languages. Does anybody remember that? And it sounded like a cacophony of noise. We did it simultaneously. Everybody in sort of to catch the flavor of what was happening on this day. We have probably about 20 languages in, this, in uh, Gambrel Street. I do think that we're a global church. We have had, from Myanmar, Burmese, uh, and, and we still do, though he's not able regularly to attend. Korean, um, Spanish, of course, Portuguese, Yoruba, this morning, Ihab, spoke with a slightly Egyptian accent. Uh, I, I guess that is really what? Arabic. It's his mother tongue. Charles Johnson doesn't speak it, but he researches in Latin and in Old English. Uh, Japanese, Hungarian, and Romanian, all in the same person. She is from Romania, but Ildiko's ethnically a Hungarian. Russian and Ukrainian in the same person with Natalia, and Hindi and Telugu. Both Naveen and Niraja speak three languages. They speak Hindi and their native language, Telugu, and then also English. And then we have one French speaker that I know of, and that's Blake. Maybe some of the rest of y'all remember a lot of your high school French, but he's fluent in it. So I calculate that we've got about 20 languages in this church, and I think it does really reflect that this message tonight is divided into two parts. The first part is one spirit with many voices. And that's what we have at Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Of course, the occasion is Pentecost, and we know that there are three great feasts in the Jewish tradition. Of course, Passover in the early spring, a little later Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It's interesting, one of those deals with deliverance, that's Passover, and the last one deals with protection and guidance. And right in the middle of those two is one that celebrates provision and the bounty of God, and that's the one that we celebrate when we talk about Acts 2. Pentecost, Shavuot, 
is seven weeks after the beginning of the harvest, which is the sixth month and the third day of what would be about May or June, and then it's seven weeks and how many days after Passover? One. And of course, that's 49 plus 150 days. It celebrates the harvest. Right after Passover, they began to reap the, the barley harvest. And then right before Pentecost, they are concluding the wheat harvest seven weeks later. And of course, the Christian date that we give it is 50 days after Easter. It is the day of reaping in Exodus 23. The day of first fruits in number 20, Numbers 28 and the festival of weeks for obvious reasons in both Exodus and Deuteronomy. Scripture demanded that every Jewish male, every Israelite male, was to attend all three feasts, so they were supposed to come to Jerusalem for this once a year. And rabbinic tradition says that it celebrates the giving of the Torah, of course on Mount Sinai, and according to their tradition it was delivered in 70 languages. And that's based on Genesis 10, where the 70 languages are listed then, associated then with the dispersion of the Tower of Babel, which we will talk about in a moment. And at Shavuot, which book of the Old Testament was read in its entirety on that day? Short book, four chapters. Which one? No, that, that's a different celebration, yeah. Ruth, yeah. Because Ruth was whose grandmother? David's. And also, too, supposedly, according to tradition, David himself was born on Pentecost and died on Pentecost. That's tradition. We don't have it in Scripture. And, of course, what happened is the Jewish farmers, when they first started to see the harvest coming up, they would tie a ribbon around the very first shoots of the ripening fruits. And then later when they harvested them, those were the first fruits that they harvested. And then they loaded them, some of them, and, and onto uh, uh, carts that were drawn by oxen. They put them in containers that were gilded with silver and gold. And they made a grand procession through the streets and the villages and the towns as they then went with their entourage and their families to Jerusalem. And they made a sacrifice when they got to Jerusalem. They took two wheat loaves. And it was demanded that they should be leavened bread and not leavened bread. And because of that, those loaves were not placed on the altar. But on the same day, there were, of course, burnt offerings. There were seven lambs that were offered on behalf of all of Israel, one bull and two rams. There was a sin offering, one male goat, and a peace offering of two lambs. And then at the end of the day, they invited their neighbors and their friends, the Levites, and also the foreigners, the strangers, to come in and have a communal meal for them. So it was a celebration of the bounty of God, and it was also to be shared. The bounty was to be shared with those that were their neighbors. So where were they? Well, chapter 1, 13, take a look at it. They had been where? They'd been in the what we call the upper room. But now, in chapter 2, verse 1, they, are to, they gather together all in one place. We don't know where that was for sure. Uh, it could have been in the temple. Uh, Luke 24, 53, near the end of Luke's gospel, it tells us that they were continuing to go to the house of the Lord. So it may have been that house. And if it, if it was there, they were sitting in the temple court in verse 1. They were all sitting together. 
and they were probably in the outer court, almost obviously, because there were men and women that were involved in this. So they were in the women's court. The next scene then in verse number 14 with the sermon, which is the next part of this message, seems to be in a public place. And this would fit it being in the temple. Look at verse number 14. It's obvious that it's in a public place. But if it's in the upper room, it could have been in the upper part of the city or it could have been in an upper room of one of the probably better, well-off, wealthier members that had a spare room upstairs. So who was there? Well, probably the 120 that had gathered in chapter 1. It seems to be a continuation of that. And in verse number 1, it says that they were all together. It doesn't say there were the 120, but we would assume that. And it certainly was more than the 12. Now, how do we know that it was more than the 12? Because when you look at the languages, there are 15 languages that are being spoken. We would assume then, not only did they, where the, the miracle was not just that they would speak another language, but I doubt that they were, probably any of them were speaking two languages at the same time. And certainly all of the disciples, probably all of the 120, received the Holy Spirit. And certainly later, all those who followed Christ then, in verses 38 and 39, received the Holy Spirit when they professed their faith in Christ. There was a crowd out there. There was a crowd out there that are going to listen to this sermon that is much greater than the 120, obviously. And it speaks about Jews being in Jerusalem. I think what this means is that there were Judeans, there were Jews that lived in, Ju in Jerusalem, but also, too, Jews of the diaspora. Every Judean was required to go into Jerusalem, as we said, every male, so they were there. But also look at verse number five, devout men from every nation under heaven. These were almost certainly diaspora Jews, those of the dispersion, and Peter addresses them in verse number 14, if you look down at that a little bit later. He speaks specifically to the men of Judea and then you who live in Jerusalem. Well, what does that mean? Well, obviously, the Judeans that were living in Jerusalem lived in Jerusalem. I've got somebody calling me now. Turn that off. It happens to be one of our church members. <laughs> not going to tell you who. <laughs> But when it's speaking about those that live in Jerusalem, it's probably talking about those diaspora Jews, those that are residing there. Because some of them would do this. They would come for the Passover, and then they would stay for the seven weeks, maybe with family or friends or whatever, and then celebrate the Pentecost. And it probably is referring then also to some of the diaspora Jews that had returned from the dispersion and were living there. So what we see in this is a miraculously, a miraculous, powerful uh, display of three things in this part of the message. The miraculous presence of God, the miraculous prophecy that is fulfilled, and the miraculous promise. So God's presence. The wind and the fire. What does that remind you of? Well, these are like the Old Testament theophanies, the appearances of God. Wind that is used here is not the normal word for wind. It's not that that we feel outside. It's the word that is used elsewhere when you look at the Greek word that is used here, and then you trace it back to the Septuagint. When you look at the Greek that is used in the Old Testament, it is not the word that is typically used for wind. It is a word that is used for breath. 
So Acts 17.25, a little bit later, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. It's the same word that is used there that is used here. And it alludes back to Genesis, the second chapter, going back to the beginning of the scarlet thread, before the beginning of the scarlet thread, before the fall. How did God then infuse life into Adam with his breath? The same word, when you look at the Septuagint, the same word that is used there for breath is the one that is used here. In John 20, we spoke about this this morning, when Jesus then um, was on the other side of the the closed doors, and he appears to them. And then he breathes on them. And what does he do after he breathes on them? He gives them the Holy Spirit. It reminds us of Ezekiel's win in Ezekiel 37. It's that same spiritual breath, which I love this story in Ezekiel, one of the most famous stories in the book. Where do we see the breath of God animating in Ezekiel, the valley of what? Dry bones, dry bones. The fire. Of course, this is an illusion, I think, not just an illusion, but a a representation of the cloud by day and the fiery pillar by night. The smoke-filled temple when Isaiah witnesses the Shekinah glory of God and the celebration of the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings, the 8th chapter. You have this fiery presence, this smoke-filled presence in the temple. So these two things, the wind and the fire, are representative of the powerful presence of God. Um, it's parallel to Jesus' ministry, I think. Uh, in Mark, the first chapter, we see, well, at the beginning of, of, all, of, of Matthew and Mark, what descends upon the Lord. The Spirit descends upon the Lord at His baptism, very much like the Spirit descends upon them now. The presence of God descends upon them now. The presence of God descended upon the Son as a sign of what? Anointing His ministry the beginning of his ministry. So what's happening here? Uh, Jesus already has breathed upon them the Holy Spirit as a token of what's about to happen on Pentecost. And at Pentecost, the presence of God then descends upon them to anoint the beginning of the apostolic ministry. So it's a miraculous presence of God. It's also a miraculous prophetic fulfillment, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And we know this. Moses in Numbers 11 Praise this prayer to God. He prays that his spirit would come upon all of God's people and enable all of them to do what? What's the verb? He prays that the spirit of God would descend upon all of the people and they would all be able to prophesy. Hmm. And then Joel, you know, in chapter 2, Joel in his prophecy is answering for God Moses' prayer when he predicts that this will happen. And then John the Baptist, you see the tracing of this scarlet thread then. John the Baptist then comes along in Matthew the third chapter, and he speaks about the one who comes after him. He says, I baptize with water, but there is one who comes after me. The one who comes after me that I'm not worthy to stoop down and unlatch his shoes. I baptize with water, but he is going to come and baptize with, Mark says, the Spirit. Matthew says, the Spirit and what? Fire. So you see this thread running from Moses' request through Joel's prophecy 
to John saying that there is one who is going to come and do this and who is the one that beseeches the Father and with the Father then on Pentecost is doing this. It is Jesus Christ. And it's fulfilled at Pentecost. So there's this powerful prophetic fulfillment. There's also the fulfillment of God's promise. The biblical concept of being filled with the Spirit in verse number 4. Being filled with the Spirit. In the Old Testament, how did this happen? Well, in specific times, occasions, and for specific persons, the Holy Spirit descended. Uh, sometimes it was for an untold period. Sometimes it was for a limited period. Saul had the Spirit of God on him, and the Spirit did what? Left him. David had the Spirit upon him, and he stayed. But sometimes it was for specific functions. So Bezalel and Aholiab, I like saying that. Bezalel and Aholiab, who were they? They were the craftsmen that led then in the formulation of all of the accoutrements that, and the uh, building of the tabernacle. They had the Spirit of God upon them so that they could lead the craftsmen in their trade. Joshua in De Deuteronomy 34, uh, he then takes the mantle of leadership from Moses and he has the Spirit of God upon him for leadership. Micah in the third chapter, the Spirit of God comes upon him, obviously, for, for prophecy. But specific times, for specific people, for specific purposes. But we know what's happening here. Jesus has promised in the New Covenant, he says to, in John 14, that he is going to send the promised one, the, the helper. And it's fulfilled in Acts 1. And we know that this is a permanent endowment of the Spirit to whom? Not just to a few, not just on certain occasions, and not just for certain purposes. It is those who follow Jesus Christ. Those who believe and are baptized. Those who believe in Jesus Christ and are baptized in His name. He says, then what is the result of that? The Holy Spirit then will come and inhabit you in verses 38 and 39. So it is a permanent thing upon all of God's people to equip them for the mission. God, Jesus has commissioned them. He has said in the Lucan narrative, in the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, I am commissioning, commissioning you to be my martyrs. What does he mean by that? Martyros. You're going to be my what? What's he talking about when he says you're going to be my martyr, martyroi, my martyros? You're going to be my witnesses. He has commissioned them to be his witnesses, to testify of his suffering and his resurrection. And there's a difficulty. Uh, some of them speak Aramaic. Some of them are bilingual. Maybe they speak Aramaic and, 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 uh, and Greek. Probably not a lot of them, like I expect that Paul did speak Latin. There's a language barrier. How then are you going to get the message out if you only speak one or two languages at best and take the message to the uttermost parts of the world? There's another aspect, and we talked about this from Acts 4 last week. Sometimes the world around them began to intimidate them and began to almost silence them. And the Holy Spirit comes in to give them confidence in their inadequacy and to give them power. And so the miraculous power, I think, the, God, God doesn't do this in a silent way. The rushing wind and the, and the, the tongues of fire that settle upon them are, are symbols of this kind of power that comes from God. You see, the power was not in the dramatic signs, was it? The power wasn't in the wind. The power wasn't in the fiery tongues. It's sort of like Elijah on Mount Horeb. The, the power was not in the mighty wind. The power was not in the earthquake. 
The power was not in the fire. The power was where? It was in the still, small voice. And who is the still, small voice of God? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And this power was transformed then. The power of God was downstepped, sort of like when you look on a telephone pole out there, you see that big box up there that the electrical lines run through. We call it a what? Transformer. And that's what's happening. The superhuman, supernatural power of God is being transformed through the Holy Spirit and downstepped and plugged into those believers, giving them confidence and the ability to speak another language. You see, some would say, well, what happened is... And the end of that passage says, everyone heard in their own language. And some people say, well, the real miracle is this. The folks don't speak in all these languages. They continue to speak in Aramaic and or Greek. And the miracle is that the people were able to hear it in their own languages. But that's not what the Bible says. (laughs) It's not what the Bible says at all. We should never diminish the significance of this miracle. There was a miraculous miracle transformation of the speakers who were filled with the Holy Spirit. There was, not a, there was not a magical or superstitious transformation of the hearers. That doesn't happen until later, and it's not superstitious. It's when they are filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit works in a different way on the hearers. He transforms the speakers so that they can speak in these different languages. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts and the minds of those that are listening to do what? What else does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts. John 16. He comes to convict and bring people then to judgment. And he pricked their hearts. So, verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why? Why are not all those who are speaking here Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Edomites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. They're full of strong wine. They've had one drink too many. So what do we have here? It's interesting. The crowd is pretty open-minded. You know, there are some that have suspicions, but, but most of them are open-minded. They're surprised, but they're willing to listen and to learn. The contrast that we're going to find later is, in chapter 4, the religious leaders do not have this kind of open mind. They have, they're very close-minded about all this. They're amazed and astonished. These two words are really Lucan. They're, they're used throughout Luke. 29 times these words are used to emphasize the impact of divine miracles. And who's God using here in verse number 7? He's using the most unlikely of all people. Who are these? What? Galileans of all people. You know, they're not even from Jerusalem. They're not part of the religious elite. They're not part of the powerful. They're not part of the rabbinical schools, the educated. The antithesis of being cosmopolitan, they were the rustic farmers and fishermen. It's all the more amazing then to these people that are listening, that all of a sudden, you know, I don't know who spoke what, 
But James maybe is speaking Arabic, you know. It's amazing to them. People from the whole diaspora, they came from, they're speaking the languages of the East, that is the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the Mesopotamians, the Babylonians. From the Northwest, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. From the South, from North Africa, Egypt, Libya, near Cyrene as well. And from the West, way out West, Rome and Cyprus and Crete. And from nearby lands, from Syria and speaking Arabic. Fifteen linguistic groups. So we know that it wasn't just the twelve who were speaking. And there are five dramatic aspects of this, I think. Five dramatic things are happening. First of all, it's a reversal of Babel. Genesis 11. Genesis 10 and 11, leading into 11. At Babel, the nations try to deify themselves by doing what? By reaching up into heaven and to dominate with their own power. And they refused to do what God told Adam to do. What did God tell Adam to do? He said to subdue the whole earth. And what they've done is they've begun to congregate into cities. And they are not spreading out. And they reach up to try to become gods as themselves. And what happened? What happened at Babel? God descended and scattered them geographically to prevent what? A unified rebellion against him. What do we find in, in, uh, at Pentecost? The disciples instead waited patiently in one place, according to God's command. They didn't try to reach up to heaven. They, they watched Jesus ascend into heaven. But they waited on the Lord and they waited on him to, who had ascended then to descend in the power of the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit. And when this happens, when the Holy Spirit descends, there is another scattering that happens. The scattering of the gift of languages. They don't all speak one language or maybe two languages. There are many, many languages. But the purpose here is just the opposite of what happened at Babel. What happened at Babel, there were many languages that separated them. Now there are many languages, but there, is how many, there are how many messages? One. There is one message. You see, by multiplying and the diversity of the languages, then he brings multicultural and spiritual unity to the body. In this church, we have, as I said, probably about 20 languages. But there is one spirit and there is one message. And at first the crowd is confused. They were confused like they were at Babel. But the confusion is dispelled then by the message that these 15 languages communicate and the sermon that Peter is about to preach. So this is one key thing that happens. The second thing is the church is born. The vinyl phase in the redemptive thread of salvation history. The first age was the covenant period of God Jehovah. From creation through the covenants of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and the covenant with Israel. First period. The second age was the age of the Messiah Son. The Son of God who becomes the Son of Man in incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection and ascension. Exercising the three offices of prophet, priest and king. And now they enter the third age in which we live today. The third age of the Spirit in the inaugurated kingdom of God where the church then has become God's covenant people in the new covenant. A third thing, dramatic thing that's happening, is a unique event, never to be repeated exactly the same way in all of history to form the church, but it has its continuing and enduring effect. 
Jesus had already breathed the Holy Spirit upon them, but I think that this was a foretaste and a symbolic act of what was about to happen on Pentecost. Acts 2 then sets a normative pattern in the church, a unique event that sets a normative pattern. There are other events similar to this, but not with the same impact. Was there a second filling? Yes, there was. After the release of Peter and John in in the fourth chapter, we read it last week. What happened when they prayed to the Lord after they came from the Sanhedrin? It said that the building shook and what? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they then began to speak boldly the word of God. With the Samaritans, they don't have the Holy Spirit. Peter and John come along a bit later in Acts 8th chapter, and they, are, they receive the Holy Spirit at the hands of Peter and John. So, so it happens again, but not in the same unique sort of way. Cornelius' family, the sign that they were believers was that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The 12 Ephesians that Paul sees when he comes to Ephesus that knew John's message but had not known about the message of Christ and did not have the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. So it sets then, this unique event sets a repetitive pattern. Whenever people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are assured that what happens? The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in them. It's the same promise to us today, Romans 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And the same thing is said to Titus in chapter 3. There's a fourth significant thing happening, and it's the singular binding unity of God's Spirit. They were all together, chapter 114, continually in one mind devoting themselves in prayer. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, they were all together in one place, gathered and waiting, unified. In chapter 2, verse 4, we read it at the beginning. One spirit filled all of them. And then finally, the gift of the Holy Spirit, I think, is, has that binding unity that brings the church together. It's the very presence of God. What unifies us today? Well, the message unifies us, the person of Jesus Christ. But what is common to every believer of Jesus Christ? Each one of us is inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. Unity. And then finally, a fifth thing is, there were many voices but one message. Clearly, these were human languages of foreign speech. It says that there were other languages, and that word heteros means other of another kind. They were distinctively different languages, and we've looked at the 15. And it borrows from the phrasing from Isaiah, Isaiah 28. He will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign language. It's almost a prophetic statement. And a key theme of Acts from here on out is the people speaking the message of God. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak the message of God. Prophetically, the apostles did it through the speaking of oracles and their teachings then become the part, they become the New Testament. And by proclaiming and testifying to the power of God. It's a theme that runs throughout Acts. The divine speaking in Acts is a sign of the Spirit's presence. Three times in Acts, we've already said, we're going to see tongues again as a symbol of God's presence, speaking. 
Four times we're going to see speaking a message of prophecy in Acts. And we're going to talk in just a moment about Peter's message, speaking the kerygma. So what's the application in this first part? I would say it's this. Each one of us, inhabited by the Holy Spirit, has a voice. Each one of us has a voice activated by the Spirit of God to do what? To bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our purpose is to testify, just as they did in chapter 11, to the mighty deeds of God. And we cannot, we should not be, we must not be intimidated. We must speak to the mighty acts of God. The second part of the message has to do with the kerygma. What is the kerygma? It's the proclamation. This is the sermon, verses 20, 12 through uh, 36. It's the second most significant sermon in all of Scripture, I think. What's the most significant? In my opinion, it may not be in yours. <laughs> the Sermon on the what? Sermon on the Mount, of course, that is when the Lord lays out His kingdom ethic. Peter's sermon is done on behalf of all the apostles, not just by himself, but on behalf of all of them. And it unveils what we have been talking about now for about 48 weeks. And that is what? The redemptive thread of God's plan. The mystery of God's redemptive plan. The way of salvation. It's a second inaugural sermon. What other inaugural sermon has there been in the Gospels? When Jesus stood outside, or stood in Nazareth, and he proclaims by quoting from Isaiah 61 that he has been what? He has been anointed. And, and how does he describe it? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So as he begins this ministry, he makes it very clear that it is not he alone that is speaking. He is speaking on whose behalf? The Father's behalf. And he speaks according to how? He is inspired by the Spirit that has anointed him. And of course, to do what? To preach the gospel to release the captives, to recover sight of the blind, to free those that are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So his ministry, the sign of his being anointed is the Holy Spirit descending upon him. And in Nazareth, he says, and it is because I am anointed by the Spirit of God. Well, the same sort of thing is happening here at Pentecost. This one describes the birth of the church, and it then not only gives the sign of God's presence, but fulfills Joel 2 near the end of that chapter and anoints his people like Jesus was anointed to do the ministry of the ecclesia, the church. So it's kind of an inaugural sermon. Jesus's was the inauguration of his ministry that then results in his death, burial, resurrection, and an ascension and his intercession today. And it is the inauguration, Pentecost parallels that. It is the inauguration of our mission. The apostolic mission launched, <clears throat> it, it, it was launched by Jesus when he did what? When he said, you're to stay in Jerusalem and you're to wait until you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is a fulfillment of that. And because of that, we're compelled to do so. Acts 4 says this, just like the apostles, when we have been commissioned by the, by the Lord to do what they did and to be witnesses, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And there, it's not just our motivation. It goes beyond that. In chapter 4, remember what they said to the Sanhedrin. <laughs> we are what? We're compelled to speak this message. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. That's fulfilling God and Jesus' commission to be witnesses. And the leaven are standing with Peter. 
virtually as the judges that Jesus had proclaimed that they would be of the 12 tribes. Though it is Peter that is speaking, they are behind him and he is speaking on their behalf. Where's the location? Probably now, probably it is very likely the temple. Very possibly the court of the women. There were 41,000 square feet in the court of the women. Half of that was eaten up by the four rooms that were around the periphery. But in the center, there were about 20,000 square feet. If you figure about six square feet per person, okay, how many people could stand in that court? 3,333. Hmm. What does it say after Peter's sermon was finished? How many people then followed? 3,000. I don't think that that's absolute proof that it's in the court of the women. But it's in some public place. It's not in the upper room at this point. And look at the preacher, Peter's, Peter's transformation, an illiterate, un, uneducated fisherman. The Sanhedrin looks at these, these uh, apostles and they say they're unlearned and ignorant men. But they weren't untaught. Probably Peter, James, John, and the rest of them had been to the synagogue all of their young growing up years and early adult life and had learned the scripture. But they had the master teacher with whom they had walked for three years. And we see Jesus' influence on Peter, don't we? How he had molded him and shaped him in that three years of ministry. Jesus had tutored them in what the scripture really meant. How does Luke end his gospel? Before he picks up an axe. Luke 24, Jesus says what? These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law and, the, and Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he did what? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So it goes beyond rabbinic teaching. He fulfills the scripture by explaining it thoroughly to the apostles. And I can just see Peter sitting there soaking it all up. And now on Pentecost, it is unleashed. His style was very direct, very simple. It wasn't florid. It wasn't oratorical. It was a blunt style. He may have preached in Greek instead of Aramaic. One hint of this is when he quotes the Old Testament, he quotes from what? From the Septuagint. And he lays out a good pattern of apologetics. He didn't ridicule his hearers. He wasn't emotional about it. He wasn't accusatory. He was convicting. And he certainly wasn't drunk. <laughs> he focused on the core issue, and that is revealing God's plan of salvation. And calmly but built a logical case. And then at the very end, he comes to the accusatory point of conviction, and he faces them with the honest truth. When you look at the sermon, it relied strongly on the Old Testament. He quotes Joel 2 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And he views the scripture as God's own word. For in verse number 16, he says, God says this. And there are three shifts in his sermon, three markers. Beginning in verse 14, he explains the outpouring. And beginning in verse 22 then, he proclaims the kerygma. That is the proclamation. That's a double statement because kerygma means proclamation. He preaches the cross, and the resurrection. And beginning in verse 33, he confirms that the gospel has been sealed and represented through the outpouring of the Spirit.
And then he follows it in verses 38 and 39 with an invitation. The importance of this sermon, I think, is that it is a turning point in salvation history. It's the beginning, as we said, of the third age, the beginning of the church. And contained in it is the very simple proclamation of the gospel. And along with that, that simple kerygma, that proclamation of the gospel, you combine it later then with the teachings of the apostles, and you have the bedrock, you have the foundation of the New Testament that meets at the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And so in verse number 14, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And what he's doing is, is explaining the outpouring. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit to all humankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour in those days, I will pour forth my spirit upon them. And they shall prophesy, fulfilling what Moses had wished. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. So he has explained what has just happened. And then in verses 22 through 32, he lays out the simple proclamation of the gospel. Threefold. It's very simple. God sent Jesus, his son. You killed him. And God raised him up. So take a look at that. It's verses 25 through 28 in this section actually quote from Psalm 16. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, lawless men. And put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by it in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned in H to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So, the threefold gospel. God sent Jesus, first point. According to the redemptive plan that God laid out from the very beginning, throughout the history of the prophets, 
And now homiletically, Peter then defines it. You see, this is at God's initiative. In the garden, he knew this was going to happen. It speaks to the providential nature of God. Nothing has surprised him in his omniscience. He's fully in control. He has guided this redemptive thread from beginning to end. And the motive and the impulse of this plan is love. It's because he loves his creation and he loves his creatures and he wants to restore them and recover them. This plan is rather scandalous. Why? Because if we had tried to plan how God would redeem creation, we would have never done it this way. It doesn't fit the foolishness of, 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 it doesn't fit the wisdom of men. It fits the what of God, the foolishness of God. This is a scandalous plan because it uses bad to accomplish good. God converts human evil and turns it into divine goodness. This is a plan that meets at the cross, and it is the preaching of the cross. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that that is the very power of God. The power of God, which many see as foolishness. The power of God, which many see as weakness. The power of God is the preaching of the cross, where God's weakness is stronger than men, according to this redemptive plan. God's sovereignty is recognized even by some of those that were not sure followed and believed. Gamaliel, for example, in chapter 5, said, You know what? We better wait before we overreact to this. Because we don't know how God acts. And if this is God's plan, it will bear witness. And that is exactly what happened. So God sending his son was according to a divine plan that really began before the garden in eternity. But was prophesied beginning in Genesis 3. Jesus, the divine son of God, became the God-man, the son of man. His miracles, he says here, have attested to his Messiahship. And you've seen those miracles. You've witnessed those miracles, he said. This bears witness that he is the Christos. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. And his power over death was proven, has proven his divine nature. He has suffered the agony of death to reverse the curse of the pain of death. He has reversed the original curse in Genesis 3. The pain of birth always leads to death. But he who was born, and this is another passage, but he was born of a woman under the law has come to be born in order what? To defeat that death and to eliminate that pain. God sent his son to do this. Secondly, what happened? You killed him. You're guilty and you're directly responsible. This is a blunt accusation. We know that they were not the only ones that were guilty. We know that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. We know that while we were yet enemies against God, he died for us. So this is not an anti-Semitic statement. There were Gentiles there. It was at the hands of the Romans that he was crucified. But we're all guilty because he died for our sin. So in this second point, there's accountability of knowledge. In fact, the Jews were probably more culpable than the Romans who actually executed him because they knew more. They knew the Bible. And of all people, the the Pharisees and the scribes probably were more culpable of all because if they had only understood the Scripture, they would have not let it happen. Today, what that means to us is we have even less excuse if we don't proclaim the message of God 
because we know the truth. It was a lawless act. You know, the North American, North American, the New American Standard Version, I, I quoted it, it says godless. It's not really quite accurate, I think. The King James Version says wicked. It, that's not really quite accurate, I think. It literally means they were without the law. They were outside the law. The Gentiles were outside the law when they, when they crucified Jesus because they didn't live according to God's law. But the scribes and the Pharisees were also outside God's law because they subverted God's law and they misinterpreted God's law. So it was by lawless people that he was put to death, but there was a redemptive intent when he was crucified. You see, this, this is not a, a, a proclamation of sentence of death. Peter's not saying, because of this, you are now going to die. It is a call of conviction, a call to repent. And in fact, in the second sermon, he softens this accusatory tone. <laughs> he doesn't say you were lawless. He says you were what? Ignorant. Hmm. Who do you think that stung the most? I suspect it, is, it, it's, it probably stung the scribes the most who considered themselves to be so learned. But they were all without excuse but not without remedy. God sent his son, you killed him, and God raised him up. And this becomes, of course, the central message of the gospel. The preaching of the cross is empty. The preaching of the cross is empty without the proclamation of the what? The resurrection. You see, this is a final vindication of God's redemptive plan, the scarlet thread about which we have been speaking. Victory over death reversed the effects of sin in the garden. And, of course, the resurrection defeated death, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. And it becomes a key message in the book of Acts. There are ten more sermons. There are ten sermons that I can identify in Acts. And in each one of those sermons, the resurrection is at the central point. It has a Christocentric focus. It speaks to Christ's divine nature. He is restored to his pre-incarnate glory and equal with God and over all of creation. It speaks to his divine nature. It also speaks to his divine work. Dying as the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Christos, he was not abandoned to Hades. He did not undergo decay, but he has been made ruling Lord at God's right hand with all of his enemies at his footstool. And when you put this phrase together, he's not just the Christ and he's not just the Lord. You know, Lord could be used in a human sort of way to, to honor somebody of importance. So he's not just Lord, and he's not just Messiah. He's not just a kingly kind of Christos deliverer. He is both. He is the Lord God Almighty who has come to save us by being our Messiah. Two other things. There's a confirmation of the kerygma and the outpouring of the Spirit in verses 33 through 36. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you have both seen and heard. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself, that David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Again, this fulfills David's prophecy in Psalm 110. And the purposes of God sending his Holy Spirit are pretty obvious, I think, in this. To inaugurate 
the final stage of human history, to empower his witnesses of two types, the apostolic witnesses that share the message, and then the crowd that then accepts the Lord and they become a part of the church, and they have a church message to proclaim, and we're part of that crowd today. It is to manifest his presence, and we need not to forget that. One of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to manifest his presence among us. Fulfilling David's prophecy that we just quoted here, I saw him always with me. It fulfills Jesus' promises in John, in John 14 through 16 to send the helper who is the spirit of truth who will teach us. But also to send the Holy Spirit who convicts the world, who confronts the world with sin to bring about righteousness and judgment. Another purpose of the Pentecost is to offer salvation in the last days. The bond servants then that we are today are called upon to point people to this. And the signs and the wonders point to salvation in the last days. And finally, Pentecost occurred to confirm the evidence of salvation. And let me close with the last point. The invitation's given in verses 37 through 39. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Well, this obviously fulfills Joel's promise. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Which was expressed above in verse number 21. And it's based on John the Baptist's original message. John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of what? Repentance for the remission of sins. But you see, John the Baptist was not able to deliver. He could baptize, but he couldn't deliver the remittance. It fits Jesus' original message when he went into Galilee. He said what? The kingdom of God is near. Do what? Repent and believe the good news. And in this closing invitation, Peter then gives us the indispensable action, the indispensable thing that we must do in order to know eternal life, and that is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then to follow in baptism. So what's the role in baptism? I believe the role in baptism is explained in Romans 6. I think it is symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection that we all undergo. I believe it does not save the water baptism. It is a result of having been baptized already by what is celebrated at Pentecost, having been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Lest we make water baptism the event that is salvific, we need to look at the Samaritans. The Samaritans were baptized, but if you look at Acts the 8th chapter, they were baptized without receiving the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And so who had to come then later and confirm the presence of the Holy Spirit? Peter and John. Now that suggests to me that baptism itself doesn't do it. Cornelius and his household received the Holy Spirit before what? Before they were baptized. It says that very explicitly. They received the Holy Spirit. And Peter looks at this and says, if they received the Holy Spirit, then we've got to do what? 
We need to baptize them. Baptism does not cause the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's the other way around. Paul told the Philippian jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus. And here he makes no mention of baptism in his exhortation in Acts 16. Now we know that later they were baptized. But when you reduce the formula down to what it takes to be saved, it's what he says to the Philippian jailer. And what he says then to those at Pentecost. And I think what Peter is saying in this invitation is, believe in the Lord Jesus, believe in his name, and consequently you will be baptized because you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Spirit, the important thing here, is the presence of the Spirit is the undebatable, absolute, arguably, arguably indispensable sign of salvation. If we want to know if somebody is saved, including ourselves, you don't look at works because people can manufacture those. And we're called to obey if we're saved. You look at what? You look at evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which he speaks about in verse number 38. And then, if we want to know whether we're saved, who tells us? The Spirit of God bears witness to our spirit that we are what? The children of God, Romans 8. So Pentecost, of course, I think is a key turning point in the redemptive thread in God's plan of salvation. Having offered salvation then, the apostles then who were saved, then share this message after having been empowered by the Holy Spirit and given them the voice to do so. And I'll go back to what I said earlier. For those of us who believe, we are compelled as the apostles were, to give our voice to that message.